I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I'm Bonnie Glazer, Managing Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. This podcast episode is a joint and crossover episode between the CSIS China Power Podcast and the German Marshall Fund's China Global Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss a recently released foreign affairs article that I co-authored with Tom Christensen and Jessica Chun-Weiss. It's titled, Taiwan and the True Sources of Deterrence. We're going to dive into how the United States and Taiwan can better deter the PRC from using force against Taiwan and how the United States should balance threats with assurances. Bonnie Lin is going to moderate today's conversation, and we are joined by both my co-authors, Tom and Jessica. Before we begin, let me quickly introduce our three experts. Ms. Bonnie Glazer is the Managing Director of the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific Program and, of course, former host of this podcast. She was previously Senior Advisor for Asia and Director of the China Power Project at CSIS. Dr. Jessica Chen Weiss is a Professor for China and Asia-Pacific Studies in the Department of Government at Cornell University. Most recently, Dr. Weiss served as Senior Advisor to the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the U.S. State Department on a Council of Foreign Relations Fellowship for Tenured International Relations Scholars. Dr. Thomas Christensen is a Professor of Public and International Affairs and Director of the China and World Program at Columbia University. He is currently a Senior Advisor to the State Department's China Coordination Office, and he has also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs with responsibility for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia from 2006 to 2008. Everything Tom is sharing with us today is his own personal views and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. government. So Bonnie, Jessica, and Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. So I'd like to start by asking you, Bonnie, what motivated the three of you to draft this article together? In October of 2022, the three of us, along with a few other colleagues, published an article which was in Foreign Affairs Online on threats, assurances, and effective deterrence. And that article really didn't explain in great detail the role of credible assurances and deterrence. And it didn't provide concretely what assurances each party, the United States, the People's Republic of China, and Taiwan could provide to the other parties. And people ask me all the time, well, what kind of assurances are needed? And so I thought that writing this piece and elaborating on the things that we had published in that prior article would be an interesting contribution to this conversation. And I think in addition, lots of people, I think, continue to think of deterrence and assurance as completely separate. And so I think one of the things that we try to do in this article is explain why assurance is an integral and essential part of effective deterrence. Thank you, Bonnie. Let me turn to Jessica to expand on what you mentioned. Your article cites Schelling and other political scientists, including my late advisor, Nuna Montero, to explain that for deterrence to be effective, both threats and assurances must be present and credible. I think it's relatively straightforward to understand what credible threats may involve. But could you explain a bit about what credible assurances mean and what elements should we be looking for when we're talking about credible assurances? 
Well, as Bonnie said, a lot of people equate deterrence simply through brute strength. And then while that is intuitively appealing, we know from history and theory that what is necessary to make deterrence work is that both the threat of punishment is you know, credible, but also conditional. And that's where assurances come in, where you know that power to hurt those military capabilities won't necessarily be used in some way to hurt the other side if it does not escalate. And so as Tom Christensen and others have long noted that deterrence could fail just as easily because of insufficiently credible assurances as insufficiently credible threats. And as uh, political scientist Reed Polly has noted, the object of combining conditional assurances with conditional threats is to, quote, present a choice, you know, one that doesn't lead the target to believe that they are damned if they do and damned if they don't. Jessica, if I could just follow up. So what exactly are the elements of a credible assurance? A credible assurance is essentially a guarantee that a threat is fully conditional on the target's behavior. And so these are not compromises. They are not concessions or a reward or a carrot. They are efforts that one could make unilaterally to strengthen deterrence so long as it doesn't weaken the credibility or capacity to respond to perceived threats. And an example in the cross-trade context could be? So we go through a number of different assurances that have over time in the cross-trade context become less uh, generous and, and potentially less credible over time as all three sides have invested in demonstrating both the will and the capacity to respond to perceived threats. And so the assurance piece is the idea that those capabilities won't be used to push the envelope or to exploit the other side's restraint. And so the bulk of our article is trying to you know, argue that as these investments in military capabilities proceed apace, particularly on the U.S. and uh, Taiwan side, that it's even more necessary to strengthen assurances that those won't be used inevitably to kind of inflict punishment or in ways that are perceived as you know catastrophic losses by the other sides. But perhaps... Tom, you know, you've worked a lot on this. Perhaps Tom wants to give a few other examples. Yeah, so the issue really is whether the preparations that the mainland has made, because assurances are lacking on the mainland side for sure, that they have long claimed were designed to deter Taiwan from heading in the direction of formal independence, permanent independence from the Chinese nation, whether those capabilities are signaling something else, which is that they might want to use those forces to compel unification against Taiwan's will. The mainland has long said that it wants a peaceful unification, it strives for peaceful unification, but it has greatly increased the military capacity to attack Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait, and it has used that military capacity more assertively in recent months which leads to real doubts in Taiwan that restraint in Taiwan on, on political issues will keep the peace. And that's a very important part of the deterrence equation. If you're trying to deter independence and it looks like you're going to attack Taiwan regardless of its behavior, then the pushing for independence in Taiwan looks much more attractive and much less costly than it otherwise would. In the U.S. case, the U.S. is strengthening, and I think this is appropriate, its military posture in East Asia diversifying the posture, making it more agile and able to strike from greater distances. And I think that that's an appropriate response to the increase in the Chinese military capabilities. But when doing so, I think the United States needs to convey to, to Beijing 
that the purpose of that strengthening of the U.S. military posture in the region is not to begin to support Taiwan independence or to upgrade official relations with Taiwan or to appear to restore the U.S.-Taiwan alliance, what was the U.S.-Republic-of-China alliance until 1979, the abolition of which was a prerequisite for formal diplomatic relations with Beijing. And the same applies to Taiwan. It's a three-way problem. And for Taiwan, Taiwan needs to strengthen its own defenses. It also needs to strengthen its resilience to a blockade, which is different than countering an invasion of Taiwan. It needs to have more strategic reserves, etc. But it needs to signal that the, the purpose of that is to prevent the mainland from using force to force unification against Taiwan's will, not to protect pro-independence politics in Taiwan that would create an unacceptable cost in Beijing for Beijing's eschewing of the use of force. So that's pretty much how it works around the triangle. None of this is about anybody being weak toward the other side. It's all about being conditional, as Jessica says. Assurances are not appeasement and assurances are not carrots. What they are is a guarantee that a threat that's made, a deterrent threat that's made, is purely conditional on the behavior of the target, the targeted actor, and that if that actor does not behave in the proscribed fashion, it will not lose its, its interests anyway. Thank you, Tom. I wanted to follow up on a, a critical point in your article where the three of you write that, quote, the three parties involved in the Taiwan Strait are not providing one another with sufficient assurances. It would be useful to walk through what each side has provided the other and what's lacking. Jessica, I'd love for you to talk about what China has provided, and then Tom, for you to talk about what the United States has provided, and then Bonnie, for you to cover what, what Taipei has provided to Beijing. I think the primary assurance that Beijing has offered is that peaceful, so-called peaceful reunification remains their preferred option, although they tend to regard you know, coercion, gray zone pressure as still peaceful. Um, but they've also long you know, threatened to adopt non-peaceful means if you know, Taipei appears to be moving toward permanent separation or formal independence. I think the key challenge here is that over time, you know, Beijing's offer has gotten less attractive for a variety of reasons, and that their growing military buildup and operations near Taiwan have fueled fears that Beijing's shifting from the policy of deterring independence to compelling progress toward unification. And that's the key change that we're noting. Uh, and Jessica, what more do you think Beijing should offer? So in the piece that we talk about a few different things, both concrete as well as rhetorical, um, that Beijing could do, and primarily they could wind back their stepped-up operations that they used and continue on a daily basis to register you know, displeasure, particularly spiking after Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August of 2022, but that we recommend that Beijing go back to the previous practice of respecting the, the midline in the Taiwan Strait. We've also suggested that the impatience that was is conveyed by language in the anti-secession law also be revised to again make clear that Taiwan will not be you know, punished if, if it once you know Beijing's patience runs out, which is effectively what's being conveyed there, that instead that if Taiwan does not move toward independence, it will not does not need to fear an attack. Thank you, Jessica. And, and Tom, over to you. Could you discuss what assurances the United States has provided China 
And from your perspective, what more could the United States provide? Well, the United States has offered a lot of assurances to Beijing since the late 1970s. And I think it's underappreciated by some people who think the United States needs to offer a lot more. What the United States has offered is no official relations with Taipei since diplomatic recognition of Beijing, no alliance. That alliance that the United States had with Taiwan was broken. A consistent statement to this day of no support for Taiwan independence, that that's not the purpose of the U.S. military presence and the relationship, the unofficial relationship that the United States has with Taiwan. And then a constant emphasis on the idea that the United States opposes any unilateral change in the status quo in the Taiwan Strait by either side. That obviously includes opposing unilateral changes in the status quo by force by the mainland, but it also has included opposing unilateral moves on Taiwan's part in the direction of independence. And this was all under a kind of umbrella that the United States, since the 1990s, has said that the United States can can accept any resolution of cross-strait differences that's acceptable to both sides of the Taiwan Strait, including the people of Taiwan. So I think that is a sufficient set of assurances. And Beijing is all, always asking for more from the United States, more than the United States, I think, should offer. But when all of those things are offered, that's quite a bit. And what we've seen in recent years is a bit of an erosion in the discipline in which we've stated all of those things, which is our traditional one China policy. And we've also seen uh, certain elements of what I just discussed not being included anymore in public statements. And I think that that's not an improvement. I think that's worse than what we had before. But I think what we've done in the past and have done consistently for years is sufficient assurance. And we should just do it with more energy and with more consistency. And I think that that's an important part of the deterrence formula. There have also been voices outside the U.S. government that are calling for steps that we think would be really destructive. And that's something we're also trying to address. There have been people saying we should simply recognize Taiwan as a sovereign state, that we should restore the alliance with Taiwan. And some people have even said that we should station large numbers of U.S. troops on Taiwan. Now, all of those things would arguably from the position of deterrence as a purely muscular activity without any diplomacy, all of those things would make the U.S.-Taiwan grouping look stronger, physically stronger vis-a-vis the mainland. But we believe those types of actions would greatly increase the likelihood that conflict would occur and they would undercut deterrence. They would cause conflict rather than deter conflict. There are things that we're not doing that we shouldn't adopt. And there are things that we have done in the past that we need to do again and do more consistently and better. At the same time, we need to build up our military capacity and strengthen Taiwan. Thank you. Now, Bonnie, over to you. From your perspective, what assurances has Taipei already provided Beijing? And it would be useful here if you could talk about what the DPP has provided and what the KMT has offered Beijing, if, if you see any differences between the two. Well, I think that there are differences, and both the KMT and DPP have provided assurances to Beijing that they do not intend to pursue legal independence. The KMT has consistently said that Taiwan and the mainland are part of uh, the same country, uh, that they both belong to China. 
And of course, on the Taiwan side, they call that the Republic of China. And their constitution even includes mainland China as part of the Republic of China, uh, because of course, the Republic of China actually used to be on China, on the mainland. So the KMT, I think, has consistently hewed to that position. And even though Beijing says that China is called the People's Republic of China, they have agreed to disagree on that point. That might not be true going forward, and I think that's important to watch. But that has been, I think, the most important assurance that the KMT has provided. The DPP has not acknowledged that same position. It has taken other measures. Many decades ago, the DPP used to say that it was essential to create a Republic of Taiwan and have a new constitution. But in 1999, the DPP passed a resolution as a party, and they took the position that it is not necessary for Taiwan to actually declare legal independence. Uh, that they are already an independent sovereign state, which they officially call the Republic of China. Uh, that is its its official title. And so I think that has also been a significant assurance. It is fair to say, of course, that in the past there was a DPP president, the first president from the DPP of Taiwan in the early 2000s, Chen Shui-bian, who did seek to pass a referendum that would have had Taiwan try to join the United Nations under the name of Taiwan. And that was widely seen as aimed at trying to pursue uh, formal independence for Taiwan. But that has not uh, happened since then. And the fact that the DPP has hewed more closely in recent years to this consistent position of not needing to declare independence, already being an independent sovereign state, I think that that has also been an effort to assure Beijing. Can I add something to that, Bonnie? I think it's really notable that when President Chen Shui-bian pursued that referendum to apply to the UN under the name Taiwan, that the US government was very vocal in opposing that referendum, thinking that it's bad for US interests, it's bad for Taiwan's interests. And it's also notable that President Tsai from the same party as President Chen Shui-bian has been very moderate in her political stance towards the mainland. For a DPP president in particular, she's been very reassuring. And when she first came into power, she said that her authority flowed from the from the constitution of the Republic of China, which is a one China constitution. She's offered quite a bit of assurances. And I think she has done a very fine job of managing her position on cross-strait relations throughout her tenure in office. And in our article, we talk more about our concerns about the future, in this case, with a, a potential new DPP administration. And what we're trying to urge is that a new DPP administration would maintain the sober and strategic position that President Tsai has maintained during her time in office. I want to just add to what I said about the DPP. Tsai Ing-wen, when she delivered her inaugural address when she was first elected, provided very significant assurances to Beijing. And she stated that she would conduct cross-strait affairs in accordance with the Republic of China Constitution and the 1992 Act governing relations between the two sides of the strait. 
And this was intended, uh, I think, as a very strong assurance that even though she was not going to endorse the so-called 1992 consensus, which was this agreement I just described really between uh, the KMT and the Chinese Communist Party in 1992, that is not something that the DPP has ever adopted. But she found other ways to reassure Beijing that she had no intention of declaring formal independence. So the DPP has been uh, providing very strong assurances, and the KMT has done so in different ways. It seems that what I'm hearing from all three of you is that what Taiwan has already offered China in terms of assurances is more or less sufficient. Similarly, what the United States has offered China is also generally sufficient, though we need to be more consistent. But it seems like what you're saying is China is the actor among all three that needs to offer a lot more assurances. Is that a correct interpretation? I think it's right, Bonnie, that you know the big question is, will Beijing use force against Taiwan as the most likely source of conflict? And uh, I think Beijing needs to offer a lot more assurances. It's done very provocative military exercises around Taiwan. But I think the problem is this, Bonnie, that the Chinese military is expanding its capacity to coerce Taiwan and attack Taiwan. And that requires the United States to do more in the region militarily in response. Uh, in order to maintain deterrence. It also requires the United States to assist Taiwan to do more militarily. And it also increases the incentive for cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan. And all of those circumstances create a bigger challenge to the assurances. So it's even more important when the United States is doing more militarily and encouraging Taiwan to do more militarily and coordinating more in that process with Taiwan to signal what we're not doing. And we need to signal very clearly what we're not doing so as to prevent undercutting assurances and reducing the value of those military efforts in the uh, realm of deterrence. Uh, you, you can undercut deterrence by undercutting the assurances just as sure as you can undercut the deterrence by not being militarily ready. Tom, what you're saying is that by not offering assurances and increasing its military coercion against Taiwan, Chinese actions are leading to what Beijing does not want to see. That is, the United States need to expand our military activities near China to better defend and support our allies and partners. Jessica, let me turn to you now. Given your expertise on the relationship between domestic politics and foreign policy, how can the United States or China provide assurances, particularly if they're unilateral assurances, without looking weak given the domestic politics within each country? Thanks, Moni. And I think really assurances don't signal weakness when they are paired with sort of equal and appropriate measures to strengthen the credibility of threats, right? We're not suggesting do these in isolation. It's it's precisely because, as Tom, I think, so nicely laid out that the United States needs to strengthen its military posture in East Asia and help Taiwan strengthen its self-defense, um, that we're going to need to uh, make sure that these assurances are uh, continue to be consistent and, and credible rather than undercut by these investments uh, on the military side. Uh, I think the same is frankly true uh, on the other sides as well. And as you noted, we aren't suggesting, at least on the on Taiwan's part, to go much further than what's already been done and been mooted. 
and largely these are, you know, these are readily uh, reversible steps that, again, uh, signal uh, an intention not to proceed if the other side, in this case Beijing, exercises some degree of restraint. Again, uh, to avoid uh, putting Beijing in the position where it feels like it has to move militarily, or else it, you know, effectively loses possibility of some eventual unification or integration. And so the idea that these investments in assurance would be, you know, come across as weakness is is really, or capitulation or appeasement is really, you know, absolutely wrong. That in fact, it is precisely because these tough measures are needed that we have to pair those with you know, productive uh, diplomatic ones. One of the things about the about the assurances that's really important is about the potential to to fight effectively. And one of the things the United States needs to do in the East Asia region militarily to strengthen its position is to diversify the presence of U.S. forces in the region because of the danger that Chinese strike weapons uh, pose to U.S. forward deployed forces and our allies and partners. And our allies and partners want the United States to have a moderate stance on cross-strait relations. And if the United States has a moderate stance on cross-strait relations, we'll have a much easier time getting cooperation from allies and partners for access to various places in the region that we might need in a fight. So it's not just being moderate and losing fighting capacity. Actually, being moderate may increase your fighting capacity in the future and may actually bolster the deterrent threat part of your deterrence equation. So uh, they're not really always at odds with each other. There's a tension between assurances and, and threats, but sometimes the interests of both can dovetail. And I think in this instance, they do, because one of the great U.S. competitive advantages over the PRC is the alliance and partnership network that the United States enjoys in East Asia and around the world. And we need to keep those allies and partners on board, and we can best do that by appearing moderate, consistent, and sober in how we deal with cross-strait differences. Your article mentioned that Beijing can signal credible assurance by keeping its military activities to the west side of the Taiwan Strait centerline. So the question for the three of you here is, what does Beijing gain from ceding ground that it already has and pulling back its military activities? Why is this in Beijing's interest at all? Beijing claims that it wants to have constructive relations across the Taiwan Strait. Beijing cl claims that it prefers a peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences. He says peaceful unification for their part. And I think what it's signaling is that may not be true. So I think to the degree that Beijing thinks it's in its, in its interest to project to the outside world, to Taiwan and to other actors around the globe, that it really prefers a peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences, the military activities it's undertaking at present uh, don't signal that at all. And I don't think if they're sincere in their desire to, to project that image, they're undercutting it through their military activities on a regular basis. And you see more and more concern around the world for the maintenance of cross-strait stability. Um, you've seen more and more actors, South Korea, Japan, Australia, India, even some European actors now expressing their concerns about the potential for instability in the Taiwan Strait. And I don't think that that's a an image that Beijing is benefiting from in its diplomatic portfolio, looking so aggressive in the Taiwan Strait. Beijing would look much more consistent with its diplomatic posture, and it would look like it didn't want to use force across the Taiwan Strait. 
And that could have positive implications for domestic politics in Taiwan and positive implications in domestic politics in the United States from Beijing's own perspective. Bonnie, if I could add another, in our article, we also make another recommendation. It reinforces the point that Tom just made. And that is, of course, in 2005, Beijing passed the anti-secession law. And in that law, it outlines the uh, circumstances under which it would be justified in using force uh, against Taiwan. And one of those provisions is that if all of its efforts to achieve what they call reunification peacefully are exhausted, that China has the right to use force uh, against Taiwan. That really undercuts its claim that it does have peaceful intentions toward Taiwan. And it basically says that Beijing has the right to punish Taiwan regardless of what its behavior is, whenever it decides that it wants to integrate Taiwan into China, it will just do so, regardless of Taiwan's behavior. China has to make its threat of using force contingent on Taiwan's behavior. So in other words, if Taiwan were to declare independence, China would then say it has the right to use force. But Beijing simply saying it has the right to use force because it's lost patience means that it is then delinked from the behavior of the target, which is Taiwan. And so that is then no longer credible. And so I believe that revising the anti-secession law to remove that condition would make China's threats more credible and the assurance more credible. Thanks, Bonnie. I want to follow up on a point that President Tsai has made a number of assurances to Beijing. We trust President Tsai, but Beijing may not. So how does a lack of trust factor into thinking through and providing credible assurances? I think that uh, on the one hand, Beijing from the very beginning of President Tsai's presidency has insisted that she's a pro-independence force and she's not to be dealt with and they've refused to have cross-state negotiations. Extremely unproductive uh, posture towards Taiwan, especially given, as you said, Bonnie, her initial uh, outreach to the mainland. She, can't, she wasn't going to offer the mainland everything they wanted. Uh, the 92 consensus, as Bonnie said, is highly contested and the DPP never believed it actually existed. So she wasn't going to accept that, but she offered a lot. She talked about how her authority flowed from the constitution, how she was going to handle cross-strait relations consistent with the Republic of China constitution. And all of these were major olive branches toward the mainland that were rejected. So you could say the mainland doesn't trust Tsai Ing-wen no matter what she, what she does. I think there's something to that. But if you talk to mainland scholars about the period of President Tsai's leadership in cross-strait relations, however dissatisfied they are, they recognize that she's been different than the previous DPP president, Chen Shui-bian, and that she's been much less provocative toward the mainland in cross-strait relations. And they also signal that they're concerned about the future. They're concerned about her vice president, Lai Qingda, as a candidate because he has a more stridently pro-independent uh, history than President Tsai as part of the same party. Both of those statements to me suggest that they've recognized her moderation. They're just unwilling to come right out and say, yes, she's been very moderate. They recognize that she's been less 
provocative from their perspective than the previous DPP president, and they recognize that the next DPP president may be more provocative from their perspective than the current one, which suggests to me that her moderation has has duly been noted in mainland China. Thanks. I want to now shift the conversation to discuss the right mix of assurances versus threats. There are a number of folks in the U.S. that argue that we're still lacking in our ability to ensure that we can confidently and rapidly defeat the PRC in the event of a potential Chinese amphibious invasion of Taiwan, and that right now we should focus our attention on building up U.S. military capabilities as well as our broader deterrence capabilities. Given this, how would you assess the need to provide assurances? Compared to threats, well, I think we started this conversation, Bonnie, with Tom explaining very clearly that all three of us believe that it is essential to bolster U.S. capabilities against China, and it is essential that Taiwan also bolster the capabilities to defend itself. We do not say that the need. To build up military capabilities against China is not the priority. Of course, it's the priority, but doing so in the absence of pairing it with assurances and even bolstering assurances could be destabilizing and undermining assurance. And that's the point that we make in the article. If I can add, Bonnie, I think that this comes from the perception, the mistaken perception, that deterrence is on one side and assurance is on the other. Whereas what we're saying is that deterrence itself. Requires assurance within it. You know, making threats credible and conditional is that essence of assurance, and that without it, deterrence could fail. I have a follow-up question, and Tom, I will direct this to you. And this relates to the belief that some have that no amount of assurances will prevent China from deviating from its path on seeking unification with Taiwan. If you believe that perspective, the question is: What is the goal of assurances? Further, could Beijing pro- potentially use assurances as a deception mechanism to try to lower U.S. or Taiwan defenses, and to appear as though Beijing has changed its path from its previous goals when it really has not? In other words, how do we ensure that Beijing's assurances are genuine and not meant as deception? You don't have to ensure that. What you have to ensure is that you're capable of projecting U.S. military power in the region if necessary. Uh, you know, it would be a terrible thing if we have actually had to fight over Taiwan, but we have to be ready to be able to do that. It would be a terrible thing if Taiwan had to fight to defend itself against against uh, attack from across the strait. Um, but they have to be ready to do that. But then the question you have to ask is: Is the purpose of our preparation just uh, a fatalistic acceptance that we are going to have such a fight, and there's nothing that can be done, and it will happen, and we're going to have the fight? In that case, you'd have to be prepared anyway. I think most people believe. That the United States is preparing those capabilities, and Taiwan is preparing those capabilities to make the use of force from Beijing look less attractive, and that's deterrence. But the problem is, if you're deterring, you're making a bargain, and that bargain is, if you Beijing use force against against、uh, Taiwan, you stand a very high probability of suffering terrible costs. Whether or not you are defeated, you're going to suffer terrible costs if you if you choose to use force. But if you choose not to use force, you're not going to suffer terrible costs. And that's the key thing. That's the bargain. And the assurance part is just saying if you don't use force and Taiwan gets to keep all that, we're not going to steal away things that you care a great deal about, and we're not going to push you in the direction of using force for other reasons. 
Thanks, Tom. I'd like to shift the conversation now to discuss recent high-level meetings between the United States and China. From your perspective, did President Biden and Xi provide each other with additional assurances on Taiwan during their recent November meeting on the sidelines of APEC? Well, I think first it's important to go back to the Bali meeting, which took place a year ago between the presidents. And uh, President Biden did say some important assurances about Taiwan. He stated that the United States doesn't have a two Chinas, one China, one Taiwan policy, which again is part of the set of U.S. statements that have been made to China in the past. He also stated that the United States doesn't use Taiwan as a tool to contain China. So uh, this was an attempt, I think, to provide assurances that the U.S. one China policy remains intact because we keep hearing from Beijing that the United States one China policy is being hollowed out or there's salami slicing. And so there have been doubts in Beijing about the credibility of the U.S. one China policy. What we heard, at least through some of the reports after the meeting in San Francisco, is that Xi Jinping told President Biden that Beijing does not have a concrete plan to invade Taiwan in uh, either 2027 or 2035. So he was, I think, trying to provide very specific assurance. I believe that, yes, the military does have concrete plans. And in fact, of course, the U.S. intelligence community has said that Xi Jinping has instructed his military to be ready, have the capability to take Taiwan by force by 2027. So I actually question what Xi Jinping really intended. Uh, but at the same time, I think perhaps we can conclude that Xi Jinping was saying he hasn't made a political decision to use force, either at those dates or maybe there is no specific timeline. So that that's the way that I uh, interpret it. So I think that both sides continue to provide each other in their in their rhetoric. I think the presidents are trying to reassure each other because neither one wants to end up in a war over the issue of, of the, the future of Taiwan. Thanks, Bonnie. In the interest of time, we'll need to wrap up. But I did have one final question about the upcoming presidential elections in Taiwan. What type of assurances should Taipei and the United States give Beijing, if any, after or around the elections? I would like to see a speech given by a senior official, by the Biden administration or by a future administration that puts together in a very comprehensive way what the components are of our one China policy and explains to the American people why Taiwan is important. And in the event that we ever have to go to war over Taiwan, I think the American people do need to understand why Taiwan is important to the United States. And if we can, then our going forward, our actions and rhetoric can be more consistent, then I think that would bolster uh, the credibility of our assurances and our threats and make, therefore, deterrence more effective. What we write in our article is that it is true that Beijing uh, has great distrust of uh, Lai Qingde. So if he is elected, um, it would be helpful if he reaffirms some of the statements that Tsai has said. And what we've seen in recent months is that uh, Lai Qingde has, in fact, said that he would adhere to 
Tsai Ing-wen's policies of preserving the status quo and keeping uh, the commitments that she has made. So I, I think just from right out of the gate in the uh, in his inaugural address, yes, it would be helpful if he provided some statements uh, about his intentions. Uh, he has already written about this in an article in the Wall Street Journal. He's given some speeches, and these should also be reaffirmed, I think, in his in in his inaugural address. And going forward, of course, in Taiwan's policies, they then should be consistent with those commitments. Uh, so I, I think there are more things that Taiwan could do and the United States could do. But as Tom has said previously, the real problem here is Beijing. It is Beijing that is changing the status quo. And Beijing's military activity is compelling the United States and Taiwan to do more to bolster the credibility of their threats. And so we are in a spiral now that needs to be unwound. And it is really important for, I think, the Chinese side to do that and to ensure that their threats remain credible. That's that's important for them. But for deterrence to hold, they have to assure, they have to have uh, credible assurances, both to the United States and to Taiwan. Thank you, Bonnie. And thank you also, Jessica and Tom. I appreciate the opportunity to unpack your argument that all three sides the United States, China, and Taiwan need to provide each other with credible assurances. Your argument is very timely given potential changes we may see in Taiwan and in cross-strait relations in 2024. Thank you again for joining me.